This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Explore captivating stories and hundreds of thousands of artworks on artuk.org. You can follow me on social media at Farron Gibson, and you should definitely follow Art UK for the latest news and stories at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. It's a presidential election year in the United States, and that means people in the U.S. and abroad are hearing their fair share about candidates vying for the position of Commander-in-Chief. Several portraits of presidents can be found in UK collections, but the most complete collection of presidential portraits is found in Washington, D.C. The gallery was created through an act of Congress in 1962 under President Kennedy, It's interesting to me that that's when America feels that it's ready for a portrait gallery. That's Kim Sayet, director of the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., a part of the Smithsonian Institution. I'll be speaking with Kim on this two-part episode discussing presidential portraits. We open our doors, however, in 1968, which is one of the worst years that America has ever had in its history. We have two major assassinations with Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. We're in Vietnam. And the museum is in some ways a reflection on the question that Americans were asking themselves, which is, can democracy survive? What does leadership mean? What does it mean to be a American and have made a national contribution? The collection now holds over 200,000 portraits of Americans or portraits by American artists. The gallery displays an increasingly diverse set of stories and images reflecting the lives and interests of the American public. These things evolve over time, and the gallery's current approach to collecting has changed since it first opened. The very first catalogue that was created in 1968 to commemorate the opening of the exhibition was called This New Man, A Discourse in Portraits. So I think you can already see right there the sort of the gendered reference, right? This idea that it was men who were important. Mm. And right from the very beginning, we have had to battle on two different fronts. One is the, um, the genre of portraiture, which certainly in this country favoured those who could vote, white men who owned land, which means that less than 25% of the collection are actually women. Then it also is facing the question of who gets to be important or national contribution. And up until 2001, you had to be dead before you'd be considered for um, admittance into the collection. So you actually had to be very, very dead, 10 years dead, actually. (laughs) Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So what that means is, you know, going back in time, if you said, well, hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe we should have had so-and-so added to the collection, you know, if you're thinking about this retroactively and they might be a person of colour or a woman or someone who was not in the public limelight, but, you know, later on you decide, well, they've actually have had an impact, it's a little too late at that point, right? Mm. Even more complicating to this was the Portrait Gallery wasn't allowed to collect photographs until 1976, there was this thought that, in fact, we might be competing with the National Archives, another major institution here in Washington. And so there are all sorts of barriers for truly a diverse group of sitters to come into the collection until very, very recently. 
And so did it, um, it excluded photographs, but did it include sculpture or are there busts or other kinds of portraiture? The idea, of course, was that portraiture is this kind of very elitist art form and then serious art, of course, had to be a painting or a sculpture or something out of marble, preferably. Um, You could have drawings as long as they were beautifully done, prints to some extent. Mm -hmm. But photography, and ironic actually, because really America, there's only 62 years between the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the first uh, living president being photographed for a daguerreotype. There could be some debate around what qualifies a person to have a portrait in the National Portrait Gallery's collection, but right from its early days, the idea was to represent the presidents within this gallery of influential Americans. It is still true today that the only people who automatically come into the collection, no questions asked, are presidents and first ladies. Keeping in mind, in fact, that the first first lady that we commissioned wasn't until Hillary Clinton, And we're actually doing an exhibition later on this fall in 2020 to talk about the fact that, you know, for many Americans, they didn't even know what the First Lady looked like. They didn't particularly care. She didn't have as much of a public role as they do now. And of course, not everybody had a First Lady like uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, or even Theodore Roosevelt. But the people who automatically get in are presidents. And when we opened in 1968, I believe out of then 43 presidents, we had about 16 represented. You know, we're a pretty young museum. We turned 50 um, last in 2018. And it meant that when we opened our doors, we did not have a complete set for uh, want of a better term. And we had to borrow, um, we've had to purchase, acquire, and of course now commission. And so do you have all, what is it, 45 now? Is yes. it all 45 or at least 44? Well, we, we don't do the, the current president until they've left office. So we have all the presidents now up until Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. We do have portraits of um, Mr. Donald Trump as a citizen, but not as a president yet. That will happen when he leaves office. That brings me to another question in terms of official portraits versus other portraits. Is there an official, like the presidential portrait, or can there be multiples that might qualify as such? Uh, It's a really interesting question, actually. So we work very closely with the White House uh, to do four different portraits, um, and they are the only other place that has a complete set of presidents in the White House. But, you know, good luck going to get into that and to see them all. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, we're, we're only closed one day a year. We're always open. And so really we are ostensibly the portrait gallery that everyone can come to see. And in terms of presidential portraits, there's, there's a fair bit of overlap, both in terms of artists and with the White House collection. But what happens is, and I've only been through this myself once, and that was with the Obamas. We, the Portrait Gallery, because that's what we do, we know portrait artists, we think about a whole group of artists that might be interesting to the first couple and we send examples, um, Mm -hmm. you know, men and women and um, in in the case of the Obamas, you know, um, artists maybe from Chicago and African-American artists and non-African-American artists and traditional artists and much more contemporary artists. And we sort of have a dialogue together with the White House staff about, you know, who would they be interested in thinking about. It has to be a good match, as you can imagine. You can end Mm -hmm. up having a really bad 
picture and history is full of examples where the artist and the sitter didn't like each other and it ends up being a terrible picture. Oh, no, yeah, okay. So you, you want to make that, 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 that little, you know, match up uh, work. So they um, get a, a president and first lady commissioned and we do the same. It could have been one artist doing four portraits or two artists doing four portraits. In this case, it turned out to be four artists doing four different portraits. And of course, the two that came to us were Barack Obama by Kehinde Wiley and Michelle Obama by Amy Sherald. Imagine having a portrait done of yourself that would hang for centuries in a gallery to represent your life and contributions to society. These artworks are important, and as such, the commissioning process requires a lot of thought. It has sometimes been the case that the first couple haven't even begun to think about this task until after the president has left the office. In the case of the Obamas, they really, we did work with them in the final year of office. And they had a number of choices of artists that they liked. Um, They invited a handful of sort of finalists, if you will, to come and meet with them in the Oval Office. And they wanted to make sure that there was real chemistry between the artists and their portrait. Now, at the end of the day, the White House and the Historical Association raises the money for their paintings, and we do the same for us. So we raise independent funds to cover the costs of the commission and the framing and all the events around it and the education programs. So in our case, we always give the president and first lady the option to decline the picture if they don't like it. So we say, if you really don't like your picture, we will, you know, we'll start again. Luckily, that's never happened because, you know, by that stage, you still have all the costs associated. You still have to pay an artist regardless whether the, you know, the first couple like it or not. So you really want to make sure you're in really good conversation. And it has to work on a number of levels. It has to work from the portrait gallery's perspective how it fits into the galleries, how it works in relationship um, to portraiture and sort of our public, if you like. And um, and it also has to work for the president and first lady. They want it to re- reflect their style and, and how they wish to be seen in posterity. And the artist as well has to really think about, you know, how does it still reflect their aesthetic and their style of working? I always think of it as a three-legged stool. It's kind of there's the sitter, there's the um, the patron in our case, it would be the museum, um, there's the artist, and then really there's another entity here, which is the public. And um, long after we're all gone, um, future generations will be looking at those portraits um, and see them through new eyes. All portraiture is contemporary, even if it was made 200 years ago. Even with such a considered process, not every president has liked their portrait. In fact, Lyndon B. Johnson famously wasn't happy with his portrait by Peter Hurd. He'd had numerous portraits done by that artist and interestingly thought he knew what he was getting, but in the end of the day had a giant and very public argument with him because he hated the picture that was created that is now hanging in the portrait gallery here with us. Even though the portraits tell unique stories about each individual president's, there is a set of loose guidelines that artists have to go by. In terms of criteria for the presidential and first lady portraits, we do have a conversation with the artists about how they're going to fit into the galleries. So we, you know, give them a not to exceed size limit. That's pure practicality. We also ask them not to make them political, not to put a whole lot of political symbols and things in there that could be seen as a, a, 
uh, supporting uh, one particular agenda or another. This is an opportunity truly to sort of show the person. Um, I think the one exception to that would in fact be the Lansdowne portrait of George Washington, which is the very first portrait that was created and of course long before we got established. And we look for a painting because as um, I'm sure you're aware, a work on paper like a photograph or even a watercolour can't be up for a long period of time because of the light levels and the, uh, the environmental conditions. A sculpture is never uh, quite what you want indoors. I think we have in Washington these amazing, very public sculptures. Um, the most recent was the um, big sculpture of Martin Luther King Jr., which is fantastic. But in a gallery, we're really looking for a painting so we can have it up permanently. Now, we do in our galleries, we collect um, presidential portraits in depth. So we have 1,600 of them. We've got something like 270 George Washingtons, for example. So we will sort of um, put in other works of art to supplement the paintings that we have, you know, drawings or sculptures or whatever else we have so that they're always changing and rotating and updating. Amongst their collection of George Washington portraits is one by Gilbert Stewart called the Anthenaeum Portrait. The version belonging to the National Portrait Gallery Smithsonian Institution is unfinished, but a complete version by Stewart can be found in the Sulgrave Manor collection in the UK. Stewart was a noted portraitist in the 18th and early 19th centuries, painting several leading political figures. The Anthenaeum portrait depicts a stoic 65-year-old Washington in the final year of his presidency. Stewart used the original unfinished portrait as a model to make copies after Washington's death in 1799, 60 of which survive today. Stewart charged $100 per portrait and ironically referred to them as, quote, $100 bills. In 1869, the portrait would, in fact, be used to create an engraving for the portrait on the $1 bill. The Smithsonian has another iconic portrait of Washington by Stewart known as the Lansdowne portrait. It has several interesting connections to the UK, including the fact that there's a copy of this work by a later artist in the National Portrait Gallery London collection. It's a full standing portrait of the president sort of gesturing out of the canvas. It's really huge. It's eight by five feet tall. And, you know, just to paint you a little bit of a picture, he's standing in this really weird inside-outside space. So he's on some kind of an oriental carpet. He has a really beautiful table that's draped that has a gilded leg that's showing sort of all sorts of symbols of a eagle, for example, the official bird of uh, the United States. At his feet are the laws of the land, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Articles of Confederation. But behind him, he has these big ionic columns that are coming right out of sort of classical Greece and Rome. And a rainbow is coming out of the top right-hand corner and coming all the way to the back of the picture. So you're sort of inside with this very, you know, gilded chairs, oriental carpets, beautiful table with all sorts of pens and books and everything. And in the background, you have this almost outside, it's almost like it's a, a beautiful porch or something. <laughs> mm, yeah, but like in a paradise with this rainbow going on, I guess. Right. So yeah. this is to my earlier point. So just to step back a little bit, George Washington is the only president that never had to face an election. There were no political parties at that point. Um, he had been general of the Continental Army that had, of course, uh, won the war for independence against the British. And so he's shown with a sword in one hand 
and books at his feet. The idea that he is both a sort of a warrior and, of course, a learned man. But there are all these symbols in the picture that really sort of both set up what the presidency would be about, but also what America's aspirations were. So the rainbow really harks back to this idea of Noah's Ark. It's very biblical. And in fact, if you follow the trajectory of the rainbow, it stops at his hand. And then underneath his hand is an inkwell that he's been writing important documents with. But the inkwell is in the shape of an ark. It's silver. And the ark is sitting on um, a small uh, set of dogs. So dogs, as you know, are the symbol of fidelity and faithfulness. The story of Noah's Ark, of course, is that in the Old Testament, uh, in the Christian Bible, um, that God said, people have sinned, you're no longer listening to me, I'm going to make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights, except for Noah and his family, get into, you know, build this big boat, get into the boat, all the animals, two by two. And when it finally stops raining and everyone else has sort of perished, a rainbow comes out. And the idea is that there's a symbol of a new world that is ready to be discovered. Noah sends out a dove and the dove comes back eventually with a little piece of greenery. People often say it's the olive, a little piece of olive branch that says there is a new land. And this, these were the symbols that Americans, the early Europeans coming to America, again, keeping in, in mind that, in fact, it was not virgin land. It was already very well settled by Native Americans. But this idea that, in fact, the European God, the Christian God, had blessed the early um, colonists um, just as they had blessed Noah and his family. So there are all these symbols. In fact, the the pen that's sitting in the inkwell is the um, dove feather. So there's, it's chock full of all of these meanings. For people back in the 18th century, they would have completely understood what was happening because, in fact, the composition is based on a very well-known portrait of the hated, of course, to the colonialists at the time, George III, King of England, Mm -hmm. who was standing in almost exactly the same setting. But instead of George Washington, where he has a very simple kind of suit um, that's sort of black velvet with a nice sort of snowy white cravat, the king has got ermine and a crown and he's dripping with jewels and he's looking a little dyspeptic and he's kind of the monarch who was not elected or, or voted into office by the people but rather through noblesse oblige, right? He, he, is, um, he comes into it by birthright. And mm-hmm. the two pictures side by side would have been almost identical in their composition and their look and everybody would have understood absolutely immediately because there were portraits of this George III. It was by Ramsey in all of the major buildings around the Americas, certainly in Philadelphia and Independence Hall. They would have known exactly that this is a new type of leader, um, very different, but still a leader coming out of the European tradition that would sit the, the boundaries of what is a president and what is America going to be like. Copies of this portrait would have hung in public places around the United States, but interestingly, it was first painted for a British recipient. The reason that this was actually created is super interesting because it was not specifically created for the Americans. It was created for the Earl of Lansdowne, who had been, in fact, the Prime Minister of Britain, and of course an earl with famous estates and all the rest of it. 
Um, so the irony of all of this is this very iconic picture that sort of lays the groundwork of American aspirations and the role of the president was created for a wealthy, entitled British earl. And it was actually commissioned by a senator from Philadelphia, a gentleman called Bingham and his very wonderful wife. She was a real socialite because they were already at that point trying, despite the war, to have a conversation with Britain about free trade. And they had also been talking very much to the Earl of Lansdowne about the importance of opening trade up again between now this new nation and its sort of parent nation, for want of a better word. But also as a thank you, because um, when Lansdowne had been prime minister, he had sort of reluctantly accepted American independence and sort of made it possible to happen, much to the chagrin, of course, of the king. And so it was a gift. It's also interestingly, too, because, you know, Washington was certainly the most famous man in America, but he was one of the most famous men in the world at the time. That's it for part one of this episode on presidential portraits. Tune in next time for part two, where we'll discuss some 20th century examples and the continued relevance of portraiture in contemporary culture. In the meantime, you can check out the National Portrait Gallery Washington, D.C.'s podcast, Portraits, which includes an episode on First Ladies. Be sure to reach out to us on social media and leave a review of this series on Apple Podcasts. As always, thank you for listening and tune in to part two next time.